Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're going to go today, but before we get into it, I need to give a little bit of background, and I've got to show you a map. I know you're excited, but uh, I've, I've got something a little uh, better up my sleeve with the maps. I, I, I got some feedback on some maps, uh, on the previous maps, and I made some modifications, so I hope you'll enjoy them. But last week in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and 4, well, four mainly, um, Israel went to war against the Philistines and they lost big time. So they went back and they plotted and they figured out a way where, um, you know, what we could probably do is if we brought God's ark, which is his furniture, it's his, it's his place on planet earth where his presence resides. If we kind of bring that out to the war, then he has to go with us and he's not gonna let his name be profaned among the Philistines. So if we bring the ark out, he has to fight for us and that's how we'll win. And everyone's like, that's Good, good plan. Everyone's high-fiving. They bring the ark out. They lost. Worse than the first time. And not only did they lose the priests that were carrying the ark, Hophni and Phinehas, they were killed, and the ark was stolen by the Philistines. Now, we're going to pick up that story in 1 Samuel chapter 5 today, where the Philistines have the, the ark um, and they're going to play hot potato with it. They're going to move it from town to town. But before we go through that, I want to give you, um, a, I want to show you a map that kind of helps orient where we are. Now, what I, some of the feedback that I got from the previous maps is that, like, cool, I'm so happy that you're excited about your map. But there's a couple things that would make it even better. Could you give us some scale or reference for where these places are in relation to current geography? I've got you. If you'll throw the first map up, look, it's the world. <laughs> all right, so this is where we're all. We are today, we're on planet Earth. You got Africa, you got the Middle East, you've got Europe, and what we're about to do, go ahead and play through the next one, you're gonna zoom in on the Middle East. So what we're looking at here, this is a current map of the Middle East. This is what the countries look like today. Egypt, always been Egypt. Saudi Arabia, Jordan, down there around the coast uh, to, the, to the west of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, that's where uh, the Edomites would have been. You've got Israel, right where it is, uh, just as the Israel uh, today is the same place roughly where it was in the text we're studying today. But above Israel, you've got Lebanon, you've got Syria, you've got Iraq. Now, this is going to be helpful today, but it will be even more helpful as we start getting into First and Second Kings, because uh, most of First and Samuel takes place in Israel, but as you start getting into First and Second Kings, and all of a sudden you've got these countries called Assyria. Well, who's Assyria? Well, surprise, Assyria is in the land of Lebanon and Syria. And then you've got Babylon. Who's Babylon? Where's Babylon? Babylon is Iraq. Oh, now we're starting to connect some dots and you're starting to understand. So here's what I want to do today. This map is supposed to help orient you to what the world looks like today, but now I'm going to zoom in and show you what the world looked like in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So if you play through the next section, we're going to zoom in on that area right there. All right, hit pause on that one. The top red city, Ebenezer, that is an Israelite-controlled city, and that's where the last battle took place. So when they brought the ark in and they got slaughtered, the ark 
and the dead Israelites are sitting in Ebenezer in that red dot. The black cities, the black dots, Ekron, Gath, Ashdod, Eshkelon, and Gaza, these are all the Philistine cities. There's five of them. They were cities that Joshua and the tribes of Ephraim and Judah were supposed to kick out, but they didn't do it. So these towns have been around since the conquest of Joshua, but the Israelites didn't fulfill their total quest. They didn't kick them out. So they've just kind of been amassing power. And now there's these five city power structures, Ekron, Gath, Ashdod, Eshkelon, and Gaza. These are the Philistine cities, and Ebenezer is where the ark is. And what I want to show you next is this is the path, the ark, the, the earth. This is the path the ark is going to take in our story today. It's going to leave Ebenezer. It's going to travel down to Ashdod, over to Gath, up to Ekron. Eventually, it will get back to Israel in a town called Beth Shemesh, and it will f uh, finish its journey on Kiriath-Jerim. And the other thing I added to our maps is some uh, mile markers. Now, please, I measured this with a little ruler on my map on the screen, and it's close enough, all right? So if you go do some private studies and you're like, look, Ebenezer to Ashdod, it was like 23.2 miles. You're a heretic, and I'm not coming to the church. Look, full disclosure, these are pretty close, all right? So about 25 miles from Ebenezer to Ashdod, um, we're going to start in Ashdod in 1 Samuel 5, and then they're going to move it over to Gath and up to Ekron, and then eventually they're going to say, look, we need to get the, we got to get this thing out of here. We got to get it back to the Israelites. And so they, ha they hatch this plan to get the ark back to the Israelites. It ends up in Beth Shemesh. Some crazy stuff happens there. That's where we'll finish our story, and then it will end up in Kiriath-Jerim. So that's our map. Commit it to memory. We're about to read the Bible. You ready? Let's get into it. First Samuel chapter 5, we're going to start off in verse 1, and there's only 12 verses in this chapter, so we're going to read all of them. All right, so we're picking up right after the battle. The Philistines have the ark. Verse 1, when the Philistines have captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, they set it up beside Dagon. Now, Dagon is a false god, and he's got this massive statue there. Some theologians will tell you he looks like a fish god, but that's just kind of some, um, that, that may not actually be correct. That was, uh, um, that conclusion uh, came uh, because of the, the root of the word. Um, probably what this is, is this is a god who they viewed as over their corn or over their crops or over their grain. And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, they picked him up, and put him back in his place. See, that's the trouble with man-made gods. They have to have human assistance in order to function. So they brought, picture this, they bring the ark of God, the presence of God, they set it right before Dagon, and the point of doing this is to demonstrate Dagon's superiority over Yahweh. But Yahweh is about to tell a different story. First day they wake up, they come in to worship Dagon. Dagon has bowed down and he's worshiping Yahweh. So verse 4, so they set him back up, verse 4, and when they rose on the, uh, on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were laying cut off on the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
So God went ahead and sliced off his hands and uh, his head, um, kind of like what Israelites would do to foreign kings in battle. Verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its surrounding territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, all right, guys, what are we going to do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. That's what we do. Put it, let's bring it to a different city. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines together and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now as we're reading through this, two things, I want two big things to kind of jump out at you. First, I want you to see how little help God needs from humans in order to accomplish his plans. The ark of God is going to get back to Israel, but he doesn't need Israel to come pick it up. He's going to get back to Israel on his own. That's one. Two, there's a lot of pain going on in this city, but they seem, the Philistines seem to be ignorant of the truth behind the pain. No one's walking around asking why all this stuff is happening. And it's interesting to draw the connection between how the Philistines are acting and how we act today, because we have a habit of looking back through history and thinking, oh man, like because they lived so long ago and, and they didn't have the internet and, and they didn't have television, like they must have been just like dumb because they didn't have like all the modern technologies and car, like, like we know so much and, and they don't, like they, they just... They must have been so foolish. Well, I would, I would ask, with all of those modern sensibilities and technologies, like, how wise are we today? Because if you think about it, we're still struggling with the same thing they struggled with. There is pain among the people, and no one is asking where it's coming from or what it might mean or what we might need to do about it, the only thing they're trying to do is the same thing we're trying to do today is make it go away as fast as possible. Let's not reflect on it. Let's not learn from it. Let's just make it disappear. So those are two things I kind of want you to look at. But there's something big I want you to understand that starts in chapter 1 that is going to play out through the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and Kings. And it has to do with 
the worldview that these characters had that is kind of absent from us. And it has to do with the way that the Ark of God was placed at the feet of this idol of Dagon. Now, when we look back on this and we think of like, oh man, ancient civilizations and their foreign gods, man, they were so foolish. That stuff was just superstition. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that all of these foreign gods were made up or superstition or rooted in uh, just kind of nonsense and, and, and had no uh, real grounding, that, that they were just, some guy said one day, man, you know what, we need it to rain more, so I'm going to fashion a God and we're going to pray to him that it rains. There's more to it than that. These gods that we read about in the Bible, they have a history. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that after the Tower of Babel incident, where God dispersed all of the nations across the globe and gave them different languages, Deuteronomy 32 tells us that God took heavenly beings and assigned them to watch over all of these new nations that God had dispersed at the Tower of Babel. So he assigned, essentially, the New Testament would refer to them as angels. Angels in the Old Testament was a word, it's a Hebrew word that just kind of means like messenger. But by the time we get to the New Testament, angels is a catch-all word for all of these divine beings in the spirit realm. He assigns angels over these regions to watch over these cities. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 32. But then we're told that these angels, they kind of liked being over these regions. In fact, they started soliciting worship from the people they were supposed to be looking over. And we're told that they rebelled against God and set themselves up as little gods over the regions they were supposed to be looking over. Psalm 82 tells us that God judged them for this, but their ultimate punishment, their ultimate judgment won't come until the day of judgment when Jesus returns. And so what we have is these angelic beings who rebelled against God were set up over these regions to watch over these people. They rebelled and they started creating idol worship. They asked the people to make images of them in order to worship. And they started abusing the women in the culture and the children in the culture. And they started making the culture go to war. And, and ultimately, the, the goal was always the same, to corrupt mankind. And so what we're seeing in 1 Samuel 5 is not just a box sitting in front of a statue. What we're witnessing in this text is a cosmic holy war that's been going on for a very long time, that humanity is involved in, but, but includes powers far beyond what we just understand, typically when we read the Bible. Are you, are you following me, or have I completely weirded you out? My argument is that when we read that Dagon falls down in front of Yahweh's box, the Ark of the Covenant, that is not just a symbolic reference. It is literally God reminding this fallen angel, who's in charge, big guy? It ain't you, and I'm here, and you gotta bow down. And I'm calling this out because we see in 1 Samuel 5, 7, for example, that what God is doing here is not just judging the Philistines. 
Verse 7 says, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. See, Yahweh's not just here to bring a plague to the Philistines. He's here to put Dagon in his place. And this isn't the first time this has happened. In Exodus 12, 12, we're told that when God says, I'm going to strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, he also says, and also all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Okay, maybe I read over that the first time I read through Exodus. I don't remember seeing that. But what God is declaring is that these foreign fallen gods who fancy themselves as gods but aren't gods and have set themselves up with power over regions to manipulate and distort and pervert humanity. We'll call them demons. That's who these uh, players are. God has a destiny for them. And we're told that these haven't disappeared. 1 Corinthians 10, 20 reminds us that uh, Paul is telling the church in Corinth, don't go to these demonic idol-worshiping festivals because when you do, you're partaking at the table of demons. So all the way in the New Testament, we have this understanding that these cosmic forces, they haven't disappeared yet. They're still functioning and trying to solicit power from mankind and lord that power over them. They did it in the Old Testament. They did it in the New Testament. Why am I sharing this with you? Because you need to know this. Because 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Folks, these guys haven't gone anywhere. In fact, what they're doing today is trying to figure out what form they should take for the modern man in order to manipulate and distort and corrupt the same way they always have because that's, there's one goal that they have, and that is to fight for the souls of the image bearers of God. They want mankind corrupted. This is why this is so important. Because as we read this story, we are reminded that absent of any Israelite standing around witnessing and telling the Philistines about the supremacy of God, God is going to declare his supremacy whether anybody chooses to declare it or not. It doesn't matter who's present. God is always supreme, and he is chief. He is greater. There is none like Yahweh. There is none like him. And the reason why I'm declaring this is because we live in a time today that if these things haven't disappeared, what are they up to? What are they doing? Well, I tell you what, some of the things they're doing, they got their hands in the internet. You you watch the news and you're like, man, why are things so weird right now? Like, why are some of these strange things that have disappeared for, for, for hundreds of generations? Like, after Christianity started spreading through the Roman Empire, all of a sudden, like, women started having value again, and, and like children were treated as like sex slaves. And it, but it seems like, man, it seems like stuff, that stuff is starting to come back. We, have a, we, we can't even define what a woman is anymore. We're coming to a place now where, where hear me, we are this close to somebody making the argument well, if love is love, then how can you tell me that I can't love this eight-year-old child? 
This is foreign stuff that was popular before the gospel of God started spreading across the land and putting these ancient gods in their place. And all of a sudden, you start watching the gospel start receding and gospel people falling for deceitful teachings of demons. And all of a sudden, guess you start watching these like, man, it feels like it used to be. Well, there's a reason why it feels like it used to be. But Yahweh is showing himself supreme in this situation. And, and, and what it tells us is that it doesn't matter how dark society looks like it's getting, God is king. What God is doing is making Dagon bow down to Yahweh, cutting off his hands and his feet in defeat and spreading uh, plagues amongst the Philistines in the forms of tumors and diseases. And they can't handle it, they can't figure out what to do, and they can't stop it just like they couldn't stop it in Egypt and just like they won't be able to stop it in Revelation when the plagues start being poured out on the earth. So what can we do? Let's move it to the next town. Bad plan because all you're doing is spreading the plague, my man. There's one thing you could do, but no one's standing around going, guys, 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 hear me out. Maybe Dagon's not that powerful. Has anyone considered that? Maybe the God we're serving really doesn't have all that power. Maybe we're trusting in the forces of this world. Maybe we should stop putting so much trust in the government. Maybe we should stop putting so much trust in, in the internet, in, in human solutions to things. Maybe these things that we've been trusting for so long that aren't really producing any solutions, maybe we should try a different way. Maybe we should try Yahweh. Nobody's saying this. Philistines aren't saying this. Their only solution is to just move to the next town. Let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they dealt with this for seven months. Could you imagine every man in the town's got a tumor? There's rats in every food. You can't go to Walmart or Publix without rats. You open your refrigerator, rats. You open up your Cheerios box, hey, more rats. You open Cheerios, oops, all rats. There's rats everywhere. Could you imagine living like that for seven months? And nobody's saying, man, maybe we should rethink this whole Dagon thing. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall do. Send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they said, here's, all right, this is the best advice that the diviners of the Philistines can come up with. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. Somebody needs to lose a job. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all your land. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians? Isn't that interesting? The way they, like they, they knew it. They, they could see Yahweh was up to the same old tricks. He wants our gods, and he wants us to stop serving our gods. 
well, how about you do that? No, we can't do that. What we've got to do is make five golden tumors and five golden rats. This sounds like the modern solutions that humans come up for modern problems, doesn't it? Pharaoh hardened their heart. Don't, don't. After he had dealt, excuse me, let me start over verse six. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they were departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart. Nope, that's a bad idea. Two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, bad idea, and put it in a box next to it, the figures of gold which are returning to him as a guilt offering, and then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, which was the closest Israelite city, then it is he who has done this great harm to us, meaning Yahweh. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, and it just happened to be coincidence. <laughs> Worst coincidence in human history. Okay, so the Philistines have a plan. Now, FYI, this is a terrible plan conjured by wicked men and evil diviners and priests, but their plan is ultimately this. Take the ark and place it on a new cart and pull the cart with two milk cows who have recently gave birth, hook up the whole system, and then tie their calves in a barn. And if the milk cows, who have never pulled a cart before, and whose udders are filled with milk, and can ignore the cries of their own calves, walk straight to Beth Shemesh and pull the ark, then Yahweh's behind this. But if they can't fight their own instincts and they go back to the barn to feed their calves, then we know it wasn't Yahweh, it was just bad luck. Now again, the Philistines are only thinking in terms of how do I get rid of this pain? Nobody is standing around while they're conjuring this plan with these cows and this new cart. Guys, why did this plague show up in the first place? Nobody's asking that. No one's, no one's trying to figure out how the pain got here. Nobody is saying, maybe Dagon's not strong. Maybe we should appeal to this other God who seems to be giving us all of this pain. Maybe we should give Yahweh a try. No one is sitting around contemplating what the pain could teach the Philistines. In fact, nobody even said, how about this? How about, how about you, young man, run up ahead to the Philistines, or excuse me, to the Israelites, and ask somebody from the town of Beth Shemesh if they can give us some insight on what we're supposed to be doing with this ark. Because ever since we got it in town, the whole thing is falling apart. Since it showed up, our gods are falling down. Since it showed up, all of a sudden, everyone's got tumors. Since it showed up, there's rats everywhere. Can you please go ask the Israelites what it is that they need to do, or what we need to do, in order to stop all this nonsense? Not a single question was asked on how to fix this issue. But here's the thing. It's probably good that they didn't send somebody up to the Israelites, because they're about to treat the ark the exact same way. Let's go to verse 10. So the men did 
exactly as they had told, took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put up the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. Okay, so it was Yahweh. Along one highway, lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So you got these five lords of the Philistines following this little cart pulled by milk cows with the ark on it. Like just the imagery is just so rich. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping the wheat in their fields in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there, and a great stone was there. So they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Philistines took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were golden figures, and they set them up upon the great stone, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Probably doing one of these, finally. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled, unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Okay, so it seems like a pretty good story until we get into verse 19. And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because he looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. Now, this is kind of weird because some translations, if you're reading from a different translation, it actually says 70 men, 50,000 men. So which is it, 70 guys or 50,000 guys? <laughs> some old manuscripts say 70, some say 50,000 and 70. I think the NAS says 50,000 and 70. The issue there is it probably would have been difficult to have over 50,000 people living in Beth Shemesh, but if that's what the text says, that's what it says. He struck 70 men, or 50,070, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim, we're going to go just a few verses into seven, took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge over the ark of the Lord. And from that day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the cows pulled the ark close to a town in Israel, and we find out from Joshua 21, 13 through 16, that Beth Shemesh isn't just any old town, it's actually a Levite town. Who lives in this town? All Levites. And not just any old Levites, a clan of the Levites called the Kohath, Numbers 4, 4, through 4 and 15, tells us that the Kohath tribe among the Levites were responsible for the ark. That was their job. So the ark delivers itself back to the people who are supposed to be in charge of it. But when it shows up, 
we find some strange things happening in Beth Shemesh. The Levites take the cows that brought the uh, cart, they slaughter it, and they offer it as an offering to the Lord, which is explicitly against Leviticus 1.3 that tells us that only male cows are supposed to be offered before the Lord. But then we're told that they looked upon it. Some translations say they looked inside it. Prepositions are hard to translate sometimes in Hebrew, so I think it leans probably more towards they looked inside the ark, which is explicitly what it's told not to do in Numbers 4, 5 through 6. There's a big outline of things that you don't do with the ark, like look upon it, look in it. As a matter of fact, when they're moving, one of the things you're supposed to do is supposed to take the veil and lay it over the ark so that no one sees it while they're transporting it. And these guys are just throwing a party, and they're like looking in it. The priesthood had no respect for God. In fact, the priesthood seemed to have less respect for the presence of God than the Philistines did. They had no reverence. They had no awe. And to make matters worse, look at how they responded when God struck them with a plague. Verse 20, it says, their response was, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And how do we get this thing out of our town? Are you kidding me? This is your fault. This isn't his fault. God didn't, he's not sitting up in heaven just like throwing lightning bolts just because it's, it's a slow day around the throne. No, you brought this on yourself. He explicitly said, here's how I want you to approach my presence. Here's how I want you to treat me with reverence and awe. And you're peeking in the ark like it's a child's play toy. They responded the same way to the ark of God that the Philistines responded to it. How do I get this thing that's bringing pain upon my people? out of this place, which is troublesome because we find out that once it gets moved to its next town, that it blesses the house of the guy that it ends up in his backyard, and his house has been blessed for like years and years and years. If you'd only treated it with some respect and some reverence and some awe, there's a blessing that comes with it, but if you don't, there's a cursing, which is interesting because that's another thing that kind of falls under that category for the modern mind as superstition. Eh, we don't really believe in curses. I don't know about that. Do you believe in blessings? Yeah, I believe in blessings. So you believe in blessings, but you don't believe in cursings. Right. All right, you see how it doesn't make any sense, right? We handle this thing like it's just any old book. And we read some of the stuff in it, and we're like, yeah, I'm okay with that. And that, ah, that's weird. Ah, let's go to something else. And what this is, is God revealing himself, the history of the world, what's going on in the world, how we're supposed to be viewing the world. He's giving us a way we're supposed to be seeing everything. We're like, yeah, like one, two, seven, four, six. Yeah, but the rest of it, I don't know, it doesn't jive with what I really want to do with my life or how, how, how I want to live my life or how I want to see things. I, I'm not comfortable with that. That's too weird. I, I don't want any part of that. Well, that's not really the deal. The deal isn't to take half of it and throw the other half away. When you come to Christ, you either submit to the holiness of God and what his Bible tells us is the world around us, or you keep trying to live like the Philistines or the Israelites that has the things of God just close enough to give some kind of blessing, but you don't ever function with any respect or reverence and awe, and it seems to be bringing some kind of curses on you. You're like, well, I don't know if that's really a thing anymore. All right, well, let's go through 1 Corinthians and tell me why Paul is telling the church in Corinth that because you're taking uh, communion in an unworthy manner, that's why some of you guys are sick and some of you are dying. 
Let's go to Acts where the two people who sold some property and lied about how much they made dropped dead in church. That's after the resurrection. That's New Testament. What I'm saying is that the people of God have always had this thing about them, whether it's Israel or whether it's the church, that when God starts revealing himself and sometimes it brings pain, the first thing we want to do is make that pain go away and not consider what that pain might be teaching us. If you don't like the word pain, I'll replace it with suffering. If you don't like suffering, tribulation. Is that churchy enough for you? (laughs) Difficult times. It doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. Sometimes that stuff comes your way because we live in a fallen world, but here's the good news. Yahweh is supreme over that stuff, and it will eventually bow its head to the God Almighty. But don't clap too quick. There's another side of this. Sometimes this stuff comes your way because you are being disobedient and irreverent with the holy God. That's why that stuff is coming your way. And if you, uh, (laughs) whether that stuff is coming your way because it is a holy God exercising judgment on creation, whether that stuff is coming your way because this is an unjust fallen world, it, it doesn't matter where it's coming from it always demands the same thing of us. For you to consider what this pain, what this suffering, what this tribulation could be teaching you. Because the promise when you came to Christ was not that your suffering and your pain would end, it's that your suffering and your pain would finally have a purpose. That God would work his purposes through that and transform you and produce fruit on the inside of you. That's the good news. But we're reading about non-believers and people who are supposed to be in the covenant family of God, the Israelites, and they're both doing the same thing. And it just makes me wonder, why are we still doing the same thing today? Why are we so quick when pain comes our way to do the same thing that non-believers do or people in the Bible who are demonstrations of what not to do, why do we always do what they do? Why is the first thing, our first response when pain starts coming our way, oh, I gotta make this stop I need some medicine, or uh, I need a plan, I need a solution, I need more money, I need to switch jobs, I need to switch marriages, I need to get rid of some kids, I need more kids, I need to move across the country. You follow? Put anything you want in that box on how to solve this problem, but the problem is the same. God sends things his way, sometimes because of judgment. Sometimes things just happen in the world, but sometimes he also sends things your way to teach you something. And if you just, if pain comes your way and your first response is get it off, you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to grow in holiness. So what is 1 Samuel 5 and 6 teaching us? Well, first and foremost is teaching us that we serve a supreme God who requires zero effort from his people to accomplish his plans but he does take joy in inviting us to participate in his plans. Two, it teaches us that there is a very real spiritual realm surrounding us filled with demonic activity that is vibrant and at work trying to take new forms today to deceive even those in the church. 
It has infiltrated Hollywood, it has infiltrated politics, it has infiltrated education, uh, it has infiltrated YouTube, it has infiltrated um, the phones in your, uh, your pocket. Uh, th- there is not a single area of the world that, that demonic activity has not influenced in some way to start corrupting God's image bearers. And it didn't stop outside the church, it's actually in the church too. It's in the church in the form of bad teaching. It's in the the church in the form of wicked men who are only serving because they want to lord power over people. And they weren't smart enough to get a college degree and get another career, and so they just settled for serving as a pastor in a church. They're not qualified. They have no business being there. But no one's asking them to leave because they're too afraid to get abused. There's demonic activity in the church. So the text is teaching us that God is supreme, but don't ignore the fact that satanic involvement is at an all-time high as we get closer to the return of the king. And then the last thing is that all pain that comes our way, whether it's from living in a sinful world or self-inflicted because you were just being an idiot or because God is trying to reveal something about your allegiance, See, that's the funny thing about God. We saw this last week when the ark was taken. He will disappoint you and let you down if it means that on the other side you will see an actual real version of who he is and not this weird remade image of God that that looks kind of like you and that you've been bowing down and worshiping. He will bring pain and suffering into your life in order to help you understand what the real, true, holy God looks like and who he is. He'll bring that in order for it to bring you back to this text. But the main thing I want to leave you with today is simple. Don't be a Philistine. And don't be an Israelite. Don't be so convinced that your view of God is right that you can't learn something from the Bible, that you can't have your ways challenged that you can't have the Spirit revealed to you that the God you've been serving looks kind of like the God of the Bible, but the other half of him, if you turn him around, he's just propped up with your human institutions. The invitation today is stop trying to make the pain go away and move this ark of God from city to city so you don't have to deal with it. The time is now to deal with it. He has come into your city, into your heart, and he's not leaving. And he's causing some plagues, and he's causing the things that are uncomfortable, stuff you don't want to deal with. You don't want to forgive that person. You forgot that person. Well, you can move his presence to another city, but you're not going to lift the curse. It's going to keep coming for you because he wants you whole. He doesn't want you walking around with unforgiveness in your heart. He doesn't want you entering the gates of heaven with malice and anger on your lips. So what is 1 Samuel 5 and 6 teaching us? It's teaching us that people outside of the world and people that are supposed to be in God's family have this habit, whether demonically influenced or just human nature, to get God out of the picture. I don't want to have to deal with the stuff he brings. I want to make him go away and he just isn't going away. Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.